Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by CuriosityStream. We've spent 200 episodes discussing the amazing things that might be possible in the future, but what about the impossible? So today is our 200th episode here on SFIA. It's been quite a journey to get here, and I thought we'd indulge in some commemoration of the event, but in deference to any new watchers here just for this topic, we'll save that for the end of the episode, beyond saying now just how grateful I am to everyone for making this occasion possible. We're also about to hit the 5th anniversary of the show in just under a month, and I want to thank everyone for all the inspiration and well wishes over the last 5 years and of course for tuning in every week. On the one hand, the topic of things which will never exist seems an odd one for a show focused on discussing all of the awesome things which might come to exist in the future, and I was surprised this topic went all poor for episode 200, but on the other hand, we do often emphasize that our goal here is to look at what might come to be within the realm of known science. We rarely drift outside that and I always try to announce it loudly when we do, because the difference between science fiction, science fantasy, and science futurism is that focus on scientific realism. Probably some of the best known breaks we have with science fiction is that in almost all sci-fi, you tend to have faster than light travel, artificial anti-gravity, and force fields, but these are examples of things we have discussed in other episodes among our broad inventory of 200 videos, and I want to cover new material today. While those last two, gravity manipulation and force fields, might be possible under science we just don't understand yet, or have analogs we might be able to create under known science, FTL seems to be a different kind of impossible. Faster than light travel or communication, which are tied to time travel as well, take a while to show how they aren't just outside known science, but actually rather contradicted by common sense as your understanding of the universe grows, as they are really the same as asking why a cause can't happen before an effect, why you can't have 101% of a pile of rice, or why you can't have a negative dollar in your pocket or a negative cup of water. Of course you can have these things in mathematics, but the physical world and the mathematical world are not the same places. Check out the FTL series for more details about why we tend to be skeptical about ever having FTL or time machines. But speaking of mathematical worlds brings up a different sort of impossible, places which may exist but which we may never be able to see or visit. Concepts like string theory and the multiverse work great in theory and may indeed exist, but we have no inkling about how we might look at or travel to them. They may indeed not exist outside of the imaginations of very clever physicists, there is, after all, no observable evidence of them. Or they may exist and we may figure out how to absorb or even visit them one day. If not though, it is an interesting philosophical quandary if they would actually be real in any meaningful sense. But there may be things in our own universe just like that, 
For instance, you can't ever see an atom, because they are smaller than the wavelengths of visible light. To really see an object, you need to use a wavelength equal in size to or smaller than that object. The problem is, photons are counterintuitive when it comes to density. Taking some liberties here with the word size, we can imagine a photon as big as or bigger than a planet, but according to our models contains just a few trillionths of a trillionth of a trillionth of a joule, a joule being the approximate energy needed to lift most handheld objects from your pocket over your head. That infinitesimal fraction is spread over a region wider than a planet, and would radiate in the extremely low frequency radio bandwidth range of a mere 30 Hz or so. The ELF band is used for submarine communications, and is also produced by lightning strikes and other disturbances of Earth's magnetic field, as opposed to the kilohertz and megahertz ranges we use for listening to the radio. When you think about how tiny an amount of energy that is spread over such a vast region, it's simply ethereal. On the complete opposite side of the spectrum we have X-rays, whose wavelengths are about atom-sized, and gamma rays, whose wavelengths are about atomic nucleus sized, far smaller and hugely more energetic. With these we can image atoms and subatomic particles, but they have so little mass and energy themselves, and these photons have so much, that you are utterly disrupting whatever you look at with them, even before we consider quantum uncertainty. What if something were even smaller? We don't know and it's hard to say, since we need yet smaller and more energetic photons to detect them. A photon with about a joule of energy all to itself would be an ultra-high energy gamma ray in the exa-electron volt region, with a wavelength of just a bit under a trillionth of a trillionth of a meter, already more than a billion times smaller than a proton, and yet it would contain a billion times more energy than that proton, so it would be like trying to examine a golf ball by bouncing a mountain off of it, and anything that small would presumably be even less massive, yet it might one day be done. However, if you've seen our episodes discussing micro-black holes, you know that it is energy density, not mass, that causes black holes, and in theory you could have a black hole of a mere 10 to the negative 24th meters in radius, a trillionth of a trillionth of a meter across. It would weigh about a ton, with all of its matter stuffed in there, and that's a lot more than a joule of energy, about a billion trillion times more. By the time you get to 10 to the negative 36 meters, as small to an atomic nucleus as that nucleus is to our planet, a photon of that wavelength would be carrying around 100 million joules of energy. That's about the same mass energy a black hole of that size would have, and its expected lifetime would be a mere 10 to the negative 45th seconds. How would you detect anything down at that scale, as small itself to an atom as that atom to a planet? being hit by something carrying as much energy as a freight truck on a freeway, and so dense that our photon actually becomes a black hole. If you've ever heard of a Planck length or a Planck time, the so-called minimum units of space and time, that's what those are and why, more or less. We've good reason to think that nothing smaller than that can exist in this universe, and that indeed maybe even black holes, normally thought to be point-like at their central singularity, are actually constrained to be no smaller than that. The Planck length is arguably the minimum size that quantum gravity effects are able to be established, so nothing smaller than that is expected to exist because it would lack the quantum interactions necessary for it to exist by our definition of existence anyway. 
Also, to absorb something smaller than the Planck length would actually require a photon of such high energy that it is expected to collapse into its own black hole and disrupt anything that small we are trying to measure. So while such tiny objects might exist, the physical measurements and interaction of those objects with systems to detect them are impossible using our laws of physics. On balance, though anything smaller than a Planck length or a unit of time shorter than a Planck time probably can never exist. Now these Planck units, and there are many besides distance and time, are non-coincidentally calculable by using combinations of five physical constants. The speed of light, the gravitational constant, the reduced Planck constant, the Coulomb constant, and the Boltzmann constant. Planck units are considered our preferred means of communicating physical properties to aliens, rather than metric or imperial, as they are based off these fundamental physical constants. But they also often imply hard limits on reality too, and not always minimums. For instance Planck temperature is around 100 million trillion trillion degrees, and that's not only a lot hotter than any star at its core, and hotter than anything we've done in a lab, and we can outdo stars in a lab, but it's thought to be the hottest anything could be, and probably the temperature at the Big Bang. Nothing hotter can exist. Physics breaks down beyond that, as likely do all the basic physical forces, though if we ever get a working quantum gravity theory or grand unified theory of everything, that might change. There's a popular and very flawed notion of looking at the scale of the universe like a Matrioska doll, comparing atoms to solar systems and so on. It's handy for quick and rough analogies, but often gets extrapolated to imply deep significance. We just saw the bottom of that scale and how it breaks down but it does at the top too. We don't know how big the Universe is, it might be infinite as we can only ever see events in our Hubble volume, that expanding sphere around us in our expanding Universe where things are not moving away faster than light. We can and have mapped the Universe significantly further out by projecting our observations of distant galaxies that were within our Hubble volume when the light left them billions of years ago. The light from these distant galaxies has only just reached us, but today, the space between us and these galaxies is expanding at superluminal velocity. In the future, when the light leaving those galaxies is slower than the speed at which they are moving away from us, they will vanish from our telescopes. This is the observable universe, currently 47 billion light years in radius, which seems rather big since the universe is only 13.7 billion years old. You wouldn't think we could see wider than that, but remember, everything is flying apart. When we see a photon arriving from some source 13.7 billion years ago, we were a lot closer to that object when it left, so it will be impossible to send a message to anyone on opposite sides of the volume using radio or light, no matter how powerful you make that signal, because light will never be able to catch up with the object it is being named at. The difference between the observable universe and a Hubble volume is the latter is smaller and is inside our cosmological event horizon, meaning we can see events that occurred inside it. Out past that we can see stuff that has happened but will never get any updates and could never send a signal or a ship that could reach it. So our maps of those objects that have passed beyond our Hubble volume are estimates only. An accurate map of what the whole universe looks like will never exist while we are bound by the postulate of causality. A critical concept there too, the speed of light is really the speed of information, and it's information that can't be allowed to move faster or backward in time because it messes with causality. 
galaxies expanding away from each other faster than that speed doesn't violate that. In truth, we can only infer the existence of regions beyond even that because we can't think of any reason why our universe would be a sphere exactly that size centered around Earth. The whole universe could be a little bigger, or a lot bigger, or even infinite. When it comes to infinity, much like the infinitesimal, not only can't we ever get there, but we can't even get close. But before you get up to that scale, everything gets rather plain and homogeneous, we call this the end of greatness, and that's only a few hundred million light years across, representing volumes not even a percent of a percent of a percent of the observable universe. This is essentially the zoom point where there's nothing really unique anymore. Such volumes are hardly identical to each other, but you stop having unique objects that can really be thought of as related and meaningful the way a galaxy for instance is. It's the top of our scale as subatomic particles are the bottom. If you want to think of things in that sense of zooming in or out and see a smaller or bigger version of the same thing, which again is wrong-headed and inaccurate anyway. Of course if the universe was infinite and you had an impossibly fast spaceship, you would actually begin to see genuine identical repetition eventually if you traveled far enough. In an infinite system, you will always have repetition of any pattern, the smaller that pattern the more often, and if we think of a Hubble volume as the maximum meaningful chunk of space, which would obviously not be true if you had an FTL ship to be fair, we'd see that repeat eventually. See the Infinite Improbability Issues episode for exploration of this concept, but the sticking point is that such being the case, you could never actually know if the Universe was infinite and repeating randomly, or actually a closed loop of that size, and as we note in that episode, practically speaking, it doesn't matter. If the infinite does exist, we can never actually experience or prove it without breaking physics as we know it. This brings us to another thing which will never exist and that's true immortality. We talk about life extension a lot here, and not just of mere centuries, we've contemplated millions of years of life or even outliving the stars themselves in civilizations at the end of time, we talked about practical limits on even digital, backed up minds in digital death, where you effectively get a half-life rather than a lifespan. But true immortality requires the infinite, and even if you could find a workaround to the heat death of the universe, there's always a finite chance of death no matter how robust and sturdy you are or how many backup copies you have, and over infinite time, the Grim Reaper will eventually get you. Of course with infinite time and space, he'd spit you back out again too, even if just as a deluded Boltzmann brain that coincidentally had randomly assembled memories identical to your own at this moment. A Boltzmann brain is a self-aware entity that arises by chance because of random fluctuations. In an infinite universe with infinite time, the creation of even the rarest things becomes possible. But continuity can't be achieved regardless because you have to be able to store and sort all those memories, and eventually you hit a wall where you need all the mass of a galaxy to store your memory, or more. Another thing that can't actually exist is what we call the Library of Babel, an extension of the notion that an infinite number of monkeys with typewriters will eventually bang out a copy of Shakespeare's classics by random typing. Of course they'd also have banged out every other book too, including far more copies of random gibberish, which together make up the library. There's simply too many unique combinations of letters in a book, 
A typical thick novel might have a million characters in it, and even if we limited those characters to the 26 lowercase letters, a space, a comma, a period, and an apostrophe, 30 characters, you would have 30 to the 1 million possible combinations. If those were each in 1 kilogram hardcover books on shelves, that library would mass around 10 to the 1.5 million kilograms, a mass that is so meaninglessly huge that it dwarfs the mass of the observable universe by far more than that universe dwarfs an atom. Indeed, even if you stored each character of the book on a single atom, instead of a bit of paper, you still would need untold universes to store the Library of Babel on. So don't worry about ever getting bored from life extension, you'd never run out of new books to read. Admittedly most would be utterly incomprehensible garbage, but that's only a slight step down in quality from a lot of books I've had the misfortune to read. Speaking of bad fiction, this is another type of impossible things which are possible but just really unlikely in any practical sense, and we see many in science fiction. Anthropomorphic portrayals of aliens can be accurate in a sense of having some similar thinking, as you'd expect technological civilizations to need some similarities of attitude to crop up, like curiosity and teamwork. But visiting an alien planet where you can reach up to an alien tree and eat an alien apple and shake an alien hand is not too likely. It's far more likely that if the atmosphere didn't kill you that the chemicals in the food would. So you might grasp their tentacle while wearing a hazmat suit and they might reply with their own traditional greeting of vomiting on you to share their meal in the spirit of unity and friendship. But as you're running back to the airlock and decontamination shower at a gallop before the acid eats through your suit, you'll probably decide future conversations can be had remotely. And indeed probably only through computer translated texts, since they are equivalent to speech, might not just be sounds you can't reproduce with your throat or hear with your ears, but involve ejecting different flavors and acidities of spit at you. And while it's common for sci-fi to show problems for live diplomatic events where you accidentally insulted some bizarre custom of theirs, that's probably an understatement. I doubt their diplomats and traitors would be any more easily offended than ours, but they might ask if you could please stop breathing in public every few seconds, or get orked why we seem bothered at them for relieving themselves in the middle of a conversation. For this same reason, I'd say interspecies romance, a staple of science fiction too, is off the table, but I never cease to be amazed at all the strange stuff people are into. This sort of possible but impractical limitation applies to a lot of other ideas too, not just lightsabers and melee combat, bringing a knife to a laser gun fight, or giant war robots, but things like teleportation too where even when we're discussing versions of it that involve copying a person from some digital recording, or even just a digital recording of their mind, the sheer bandwidth involved, and energies needed for a rapid scan or rapid print, is likely to often make it infeasible if technically possible. Many times, even when we say technically possible, we really only mean on paper anyway, and a perpetual motion machine is for instance possible on paper since while we often use that to mean something that can generate free power, its basic form is something that just keeps moving without slowing down. And of course that's fine under Newton's first law, the core physics itself. An object in motion will stay in motion unless acted on by some other force. But there's always some other forces around. Forget about friction on a spinning wheel, 
even a sphere turning around in the vacuum of space will eventually slow down, because there is no true vacuum. And even in the quantum sense, there's random stuff popping in and out of existence all the time. Interesting side note, since so many classic sci-fi battles involve fighters dogfighting like jets in an atmosphere, I've seen some fictional settings justify this cleverly with etheric rudders or similar, and with all that quantum bubbling going on, it is vaguely conceivable someone might find a way to interact with that strongly and thus make a rudder or fin that could pivot around by plowing through that. This might also permit a reactionless spaceship drive, which could be very handy. Critically though, even when there's nothing, there's always something, something to make stuff break down or act less efficiently. So objects built to last a trillion years without repairs are unlikely, and we spent last episode just talking about all the extra maintenance space stations, megastructures, and spaceships have from wear and tear happening in empty space. That applies to another popular notion for immortality and resurrection, the idea that a sufficiently powerful computer could reconstruct the long dead, sort of the reverse case of predicting the future by predicting every action or even every particle's motion. A fairly dark example of that is Rocco's Basilisk, where a technological singularity quasi-violates causality by threatening people in the past not to interfere in its eventual creation or will resurrect and torment them. That's a pretty crazy notion and some folks get walked into dread worrying about it. There is no need though, no computer could ever do it. We explained how the future prediction angle could never be done, no matter how powerful the computer, in our episode on Psychohistory, and for much the same reason that the Library of Babel can't exist, even if you kept it more modest, like only allowing actual wards, not random characters, or only books a few pages long. There's just too many permutations, even ignoring quantum, which we can't. See a person buried in the ground doesn't stay that way for long. It's a bit morbid to say it, but your brain is going to get eaten, and it's going to decay and outgas, and those bugs are going to exhale and inhale and excrete and die and get eaten, and good luck tracking the vectors on those particles. Freeze someone or get them fairly fresh and sure, but don't go hoping to ever meet a resurrected Ben Franklin, I give time travel better odds than that. That's not to say we couldn't cheat if we ever got the ability to see the past, not even travel there but detect all atoms and energies at a particular place and time. We could resurrect a copy of Ben Franklin at the moment of his death or very soon after. It wouldn't be Ben Franklin, but the copy would stake their life on the fact that they were, so perhaps it wouldn't matter. Ultimately, we can't of course say what is or isn't possible, there's always room for surprise, but we can try to look at what might be possible under known science, or how we can achieve something similar or even better than the wildest dreams of sci-fi without needing radical changes in our understanding of the Universe. Or we can speculate on an example of such a radical change or technology and see what it might imply. And that's what we've tried to do over the last 200 episodes and what I hope we'll be able to do for another 200. Certainly there's no fear of running out of stuff to talk about, we only scratched the surface of most of these concepts today. And the future might not allow anything we can imagine, but it certainly allows a lot, and seems to offer us new dreams to explore every week, so we'll keep on doing that. Folks say that when it comes to the future, the sky's the limit, 
but as we say here on SFIA, it most certainly is not. So 200 episodes now, each its own documentary effectively, and I want to talk a bit about that journey, but first, if you have seen all 200 episodes and can't wait till next week, try out Curiosity Stream. With over 2400 documentaries on science and learning from some of the world's best filmmakers, Curiosity Stream offers a vast supply of thought-provoking videos on many fun, educational, and inspiring topics. Given our topic for today, I'd particularly recommend Journey of the Universe, a chronicle of humanity's journey to understand our universe and the math and physics that helped us find out what was possible. You can get unlimited access starting at just $2.99 a month, and for our audience the first 30 days are completely free if you sign up at curiositystream.com slash during the sign up process. So I mentioned at the beginning I wanted to talk a bit about our own journey of the Universe and 200 episodes after our show today, and thanks for joining me for this after show. If you're curious about why we picked today's topics, we ran a series of polls to see what topic we should commemorate the 200th episode with, and to my surprise the winning topic was things which will never exist. Given that we normally focus on awesome things that might exist in the future, perhaps that's appropriate and interestingly the episode was selected from 67 topics the audience over at our Facebook group suggested, with the top 5 being pulled here on YouTube. The topic was actually suggested by our longtime cover artist, Jacob Greiger, who was the first person to start helping me out on the show way back around episode 20 in 2016, about a year and a half since our very first episode and also about when we started doing weekly episodes. Since we started that, we haven't missed a single Thursday weekly release yet, and much of the credit for that goes to the many folks who since joined up to help out making the show. I should note that the episode 200 is kinda debatable. A couple years back when we started putting together a large team, I started writing each episode a couple months in advance to allow plenty of time for script editing and graphics. To keep organized, I assigned each episode a number in order, as titles often changed between initial brainstorming and when they aired, on the episode chronology sheet that we tracked that all on and which I'll link below. You'll note the entry is way past line 200, and that's because I eventually started treating the number as more of the production week, so bonus episodes, collaborations with other shows, interviews and so on all get the number plus a letter, and many of those bonus episodes get written long after the regular episodes which follow them, so I just squeeze them into the chronology. I could think of about four different ways to properly count the episodes and had long since decided we'd let the audience pick our 200th episode, or episodes in a way, so amusingly this is actually our fourth celebratory episode in a row, our last three were also poor selected, and last week's episode was the poor winner over on our Patreon page. Let me give them a quick thanks too, the thousand or so folks whose generous donations fund this show are one of the biggest reasons we are celebrating 200 episodes today. If you've ever wondered why the occasional extra episodes that throw off the count are called bonus episodes, it's because the first few were made specifically to reward our Patreon supporters, who normally get charged for each weekly episode and not those. I think it speaks a lot to the character of those folks who give up their hard-earned money to support this enterprise that when I offered the option of having them alone get to see the bonus episodes first, since they were my way of thanking them, 
the resounding consensus was no, let everyone see them right from day one. From years of being on YouTube and getting to know other channels, I can say that spirit is not universal by any means, and I'm beyond grateful for having an audience that has a reputation among other science and education shows for their enthusiasm, involvement, and courtesy. From all the folks who help out on the show to every discussion on our social media forums, to every comment left on each episode, you are my inspiration in so many ways. I want to thank you all for joining us every week for the show. I still remember when I got an email from YouTube telling me I had a subscriber and asking what the heck a subscriber was, and as a few more rolled in, thinking how neat it was that there were hundreds of folks who shared my interest in exploring the future. Now that the show has hundreds of thousands of subscribers, all I can say is thank you for joining us, thank you for making 200 episodes possible, thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for watching, and we'll see ya next week.